I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. I wandered lonely as a cloud that floats on high o'er vales and hills, when all at once I saw a crowd, a host of golden daffodils, beside the lake, beneath the trees, fluttering and dancing in the breeze. Those are the words of the romantic poet William Wordsworth. He wrote this classic poem, I Wandered Lonely as a Cloud, in the early 1800s after he encountered a stunning belt of daffodils while walking through the countryside with his sister one April. In this opening stanza, Wordsworth is able to perfectly sum up the feeling daffodils bring us each spring as they cut through the harsh winter landscape, joyous and yellow, full of life, ushering in a new season. As the world's de facto daffodil capital, the power that these flowers hold is communal, an experience shared by those up, down and across the UK. I think daffodils for me, firstly I think they were one of the first flowers that I truly loved. I truly started collecting them when I was probably 11 or 12. There's just so much history to, to daffodils, they're absolutely fascinating. They're just like this ray of light, aren't they, this ray of sunshine. They're a statuesque flower, aren't they? they? They don't bend in the breeze, they stand and hold firm. So, you, you know, they're, they're a strong statement, I think. Now that it's September, we've officially entered the season of planting spring and summer flowering bulbs. It's time to get things like daffodils, alliums, crocuses and hyacinths into the ground. So with that in mind, we've put together a bulb deep dive with a strong emphasis on our golden classics, Narcissus. We'll be travelling to the RHS's Lindley Library in London to get a taste of Daffodil's long history of cultivation. Self-proclaimed Daffodil superfan Camilla Bassett-Smith will be sharing her favourite cultivars. Afterwards, we get a mini-tutorial on naturalising Narcissi in our gardens. And then, finally, we're turning away from DAFs to get a sense of exciting innovations and trends in the world of bulbs with Michael Perry, also known as Mr Plant Geek. You're listening to Gardening with the RHS with me, Guy Barter. Let's begin with Charlotte Brooks, the art curator at the Lindy Library, to get the backstory of a springtime favourite. 
Well, daffodils are fabulous because we see them in all sorts of artistic and creative settings. So often featured in poetry, ceramics, textiles. One of my favourites that always makes me smile is A.A. Milne's poem, uh, which takes us right back to our childhood. So he says, The daffodown dilly has come up to town in a yellow petticoat and a green gown. So one of those very iconic flowers that's immediately recognisable. Historically, they might have been known as lent lilies, trumpet lilies, daffodown dilly, but the origin of the name Narcissus is believed to be derived from the Greek narc, meaning numbness or narcotic, which is possibly because of the poisonous nature of the bulbs to animals particularly. But Narcissus in Greek mythology, of course, was uh, a youth who fell in love with his own reflection and legend being that he pined away and then the flower that sprang up was the Narcissus flower. So here in the Lindley Library, we've got lots and lots of illustrations of Narcissus. Some of the earliest ones dating back to the 16th century with woodcut illustrations in early published books. So the first book to describe daffodils in English as ornamental garden varieties was in John Parkinson's Paradisius Terrestris, published in 1629. And he lists nearly 100 varieties of daffodils. But what we typically see is that in the 16th and 17th centuries, daffodils were really commonly used for medicinal purposes. So they grew wild in Spain and Portugal before spreading across Europe, where they naturalised. But they're not typically used in the formal garden settings that we see. We, we see them occasionally, but it's quite unusual because during this period, the gardens tended to be more structured in their appearance. We see them occasionally, but they're not kind of great favourites, if you like. What we also tended to find is that as new plant introductions from overseas were becoming popular, particularly in the late 18th and early 19th centuries, there was a fashion for what we might describe as the exotics. So orchids particularly were real favourites amongst the collectors. So it wasn't really until a little bit later on, I'd say probably the mid-19th century, that we started to see what's been described as being a quiet revolution of interested amateur gardeners and, and breeders really start to make progress with the daffodil breeding programme. So amongst the group of people who were particularly interested in daffodils and daffodil breeding were a group of English clergymen, one of whom was Dean William Herbert, who was the Dean of Manchester. So he had a keen interest in bulbs and he was amongst a small number of gardeners who began by experimenting producing hybrids by crossing the flowers and the fruit. So Herbert was published in the Society's Transactions and contributed a number of articles to Curtis's Botanical Magazine. And then his new daffodil varieties he published a full description of in 1843. Well, he then shared his ideas with Darwin 
and they had a, a lifelong friendship that actually began with correspondence with another botanist. Herbert's work also inspired Edward Leeds and William Backhouse, who were both significant growers, and they, in turn, laid the groundwork for the great daffodil populariser and nurseryman Peter Barr. So the name Peter Barr will be familiar to all garden historians and he, he was a professional nurseryman and bulb dealer unlike our clergyman Herbert. He was a partner of Barr and Sons from 1861 and had a particular passion for daffodils and really helped to develop the daffodil scene at the RHS. Daffodils weren't at this point particularly commercially interesting and so Barr set about on a personal mission to bring the daffodil to a much wider gardening audience and he was self-styled as the Daffodil King. And it was in 1884 that Barr persuaded the RHS to hold the first Daffodil Conference. So this was really the first time that a daffodil committee was established, which would oversee the new official classification framework for daffodils going forwards. So we have today the Daffodil Register, which is a classification of cultivated daffodils developed originally from Barr's system that he used for his nursery catalogues. So daffodils are still being bred today and we still have an active daffodil registrar. There are approximately 27,000 cultivars registered on the International Registration Database. And we obviously still all relish and enjoy the moment that the first daffodils come into flower in the early spring. They're a statuesque flower, aren't they? they? They don't bend in the breeze, they stand and hold firm. So, you, you know, they're, they're a strong statement, I think. Thanks there to Charlotte. The Lindley Library is a treasure trove for anyone interested in gardening history, with collections on famous plantsmen and gardeners of yore, on the history of plants in cultivation and fabulous gardens, on botanical art and photography, and much, much more. You can plan a visit to the library in London using a link in our show notes or explore their vast digital collection online. As Charlotte mentioned, there are many, many daffodil cultivars and they come in all sorts of shapes, sizes and even colours. It'd be a crime not to share some of our most cherished and popular garden varieties with you. So Gareth Richards, my lovely co-host and associate editor at The Garden magazine, spoke with TV horticulturist and daffodil nut Camilla Bassett-Smith about her top picks. So we're talking daffodils and for me they're the true markers of spring and they, they give you this wonderful hope that, you know, winter's over, spring is here. But what, what significance do they hold for you? I think daffodils for me, firstly I think they were one of the first flowers that I truly loved. I truly started collecting them when I was probably 11 or 12 and my eyes were open to just the huge variety that are available. Yes, there's the yellow trumpets, but once you start looking into it, you've got pinks, you've got whites, you've got miniatures, you've got doubles, just so much variety and as you said, so much hope and positivity at a time of year when it's been dark and it's been cold. And yeah, I just absolutely adore them. They're just like this ray of light, aren't they? This ray of sunshine. I mean, what, what kind of memories come to mind when you think about daffodils? 
Well, I first got involved in daffodils. I have to say probably hyacinths got me involved in daffodils. I grew many, many hyacinths forcing them and putting them in a sort of a dark place and then bringing them out on the windowsill. And through that, I sort of discovered bulbs, if you liked. And then we moved house and I had a wonderful neighbour called Sue, who was a true botanist and she knew so much. And in her garden, she had swathes of Mount Hood, a white trumpet. She also had Mary Copeland, a heritage double. And it was her that really opened my eyes to the different ones that were available. And I can remember walking around her garden and her saying, would you like some of these, Camilla? And me saying, yes, please. And then I would go and I'd dig them up and bring them home to my garden. And from that point onwards, I started looking at suppliers. I joined the Daffodil Society. Brian Duncan in Northern Ireland would send me bulbs. I'd save up my pocket money and, and send <laughs> off my order. And he would send me some back and he'd often put a few gratis ones in. And, and through that, I really started building my own collection. And everywhere I went, a garden centre or whatever, I would look and just swathes of bulbs at this time of year in the autumn available. So can you give us a little kind of a rundown of some of the more common types and what those key groups kind of represent for the gardener? The Division One trumpets are the ones that everybody knows from the good old traditional King Alfred yellow trumpet. Oh, yes. Some more of the, of the varieties are, are more scented in the other divisions. So you've got the Division Sevens, the John Quillers, and the Division Eights, the Tazettas. And there when you get that sort of true scent kicking in at the paper whites, the Tazetta, people will know those from forcing them for Christmas time. And you've also got Grand Soleil d'Or. Of course, these varieties are forced on the Isles of Scilly early on in the season and sent out, you know, worldwide for the cut flower mm. industry. You have the doubles, that's the division fours. And I mentioned earlier on Mary Copeland, which was my first introduction to a double, which dates round to the early 1900s and was bred by a gentleman called William Copeland, who named it for his daughter. And that's a beautiful white double with some red inside it. Most of the modern doubles have Mary Copeland in their genes. So that was one of the first good doubles. But it's a really lovely one to grow because it does have scent. Now, a group that I particularly enjoy, which has only really been around for 100 years or so, so quite recent in the world of daffodil divisions, <laughs> are the split coronas. And that's the division 11s. And that's where the cup is split. And they're often known as the butterfly daffodils. They have that kind of lovely kind of um, mm. papery split cup, which looks so, so pretty. It's unusual, Gareth. I don't know what you think of them. I'm not completely convinced about them in the garden, to be 100% to be honest, but I think they look amazing in a vase. They're a difficult one to place. As you said, in a garden, I think you have to be so careful of picking the right daffodil for the right place, really. But you're right, those Division 11s, those really wacky new introductions are far better, perhaps in a vase or a cutting garden or a pot. So we've talked about yellow cultivars and white cultivars. Are you a yellow lover or a white lover? Do you know, I love them all because, I mean, you can't beat a good old-fashioned yellow trumpet because that's what people identify a daffodil as. And it's interesting because apparently Oscar Wilde really has been linked to sort of enhancing the popularity of the daffodil because of his love of bright yellows. And in a time when the fashion was perhaps more for exotics, but then there was this turn in the tide towards daffodils mm. and towards loving a bulb that perhaps previously to that had been seen as perhaps a bit dull and a bit boring. 
But so I love yellow in answer to your question, but I'm very excited by the introduction of the pink, which the first pink trumpet was in the 1920s. Mrs. R.O. Backhouse was that trumpet. And then breeders like Brian Duncan in Northern Ireland have since introduced Lilac Charm, I think in the 70s, a beautiful lilac cup. It's a miniature and there's a lot more breeding being done these days into the miniature daffodils. Could you recommend us some smaller or miniature cultivars that are really, really good for pots and really good for perhaps small gardens? Okay, well, the one, the classic that everyone will know is Tate Tate. And although people might think, oh, it's a bit, you know, everybody knows it, but it's a good doer. It stays short. It clumps up quite nicely over a number of years. So you're getting that ever-increasing return, if you like. Rip Van Winkle is another very small one that I love. And this is a crazy-looking double, but it's very small, has these large, dramatic heads. And it's quite a, quite a strange little chappy, but I, I recommend Rip Van Winkle as something different for a little terracotta pot mm. that's beautiful. So which, which are you planting? Well, I'm planting a new one called Rataplan. And it's quite a strange one because the cup has little sections taken out of it. It's sort of orangey yellow. And I do like to, to plant sort of new ones, new introductions, if you like, something that, that hasn't been seen before. But I'm also increasing my stocks of White Lady, a good old-fashioned favourite. Again, I think daffodils are very good because you can grow them if you have a large amount of ground. Yes, they look glorious in sweeping swathes, but they also work very, very well in small areas, in pots, by your front doors or, you know. So I think they're a very versatile bulb that has something to offer for everybody, really. So Camilla, you've told us about some of the amazing introductions and, and the kind of the journey that daffodils have been on so far to get into our gardens. But what's next in daffodil breeding? Where are we headed? Well, there are two things, really. The holy grail for many daffodil breeders is a true red. Now, this mm. true red is coming from the poet's daffodils, the Division 9s, which is where they get that red from because they have a truly stunning red mm. rim on the cup. But they're really trying to get as much red as possible because many of the red cups are perhaps more on the orange scale. But also you're seeing Australia, New Zealand, America, huge, huge providers in, in introducing new cultivars, of which there are now around 30,000 cultivars. I mean, you compare that to tulips, of which there are perhaps, what, three or 4,000 cultivars. There are such a huge amount and there's no sign of it slowing down. You know, there's just so much more to come and it's mm. so, so exciting. Camilla, thanks so much for joining us on the programme. My pleasure. Camilla is on the RHS Bulb Committee and is a judge in our bulb trials, which help gardeners pick the best bulbs for their gardens. Look out for the varieties that have received the Award of Garden Merit, shortened to AGM, when you're scanning the bulb catalogues. I absolutely adore daffodils, and I planted great numbers at the back of my allotment where it's quite shady. I must have dozens of varieties, and they come up each year, and I bring them back to the house for cut flowers. I've been growing them for about 25 years, and every so often I find gaps in my planting and I put other ones in. This year, I'm planting one called Mother Duck, which is a beautiful little dwarf yellow one, which I should naturalise, I hope, in my back garden. And I'm planting one called Elki, which is a white daffodil, also a small one, and that too is going in the back garden. Although you can grow daffodils in pots or in neat borders, I love the look of them growing among grasses. They look like sparkling gems in a sea of green. Like me, Caroline Stone, another daffodil lover, 
and editor for the Nerine and Amaryllid Society journal Amaryllis, likes a naturalised look. And today she's here with her top tips on how best to do this on your own plot. Yeah, so I have a Cornish hedge, which is basically an earth bank. And on the top of that are a lot of different daffodils. And as I started trying to identify the different varieties, they all turn out to be pre-1920s varieties. And that really kind of boosted my interest and got me researching daffodils and getting more and more interested in them. There's just so much history to, to daffodils. They're absolutely fascinating. And particularly in this part of the country where you know, daffodils were a big industry, particularly for the small farmers where it was a sort of subsistence crop. Basically, you were trying to make money on anything you could. But, you know, for instance, my cousins had fields of daffodils which they would pick and bunch in their kitchen, and then they'd be sent up on the train from Tavistock up to the flower markets in London. So there's a lot of history in the area around daffodils, but each variety, particularly of the old ones, when you start looking into them and who bred them, you know, they have particular geographic connections, perhaps. There's just so much to find out about them and they're, they're utterly fascinating. Well, I, th I thought that it'd be quite interesting to talk about naturalising daffodils because it's something that looks really effective in the garden. And with people liking the idea of a more sort of wild approach to gardening, this is really appropriate, I think, because you can underplant with your daffodils and just leave them there to get on with it. And if you've chosen the right sort of varieties, they will come back year after year and look wonderful in the garden. You will find, obviously, that if they've got to compete with thick grass, that they're going to find it more difficult. I've got the wild daffodil, so Narcissus, pseudo-Narcissus, underneath trees. And there, you haven't got thick grass so they're not competing with anything and they seed and they seed like bilio and they're now heading off through all my flower beds as well and it's it's wonderful because it's just this great big long ribbon of beautiful yellow wild daffodils in the spring so if you've got an area like that where the grass is thinner and you've got something like particularly the wild ones which will start to seed themselves that's really really good but then you can also see, for example, if you go to the RHS gardens at Rosemore, their great lawn, they've got the hoop petticoat daffodils, the Narcissus bulbicodum, and that's planted in the lawn, and that is so pretty. There, it's they're perhaps a little bit more spaced out, but the little flowers, they look like little ladies in crinoline sort of dancing across the lawn, and that is so effective. So the, you need to think a bit about what you're going to plant and where you're going to plant them. Well, as with all daffodils, you're aiming to plant them fairly deep. So you want to be planting them at, at least sort of three times the depth of the bulb. But if you can get them in deeper, that's even better, to be honest. Try to get a nice natural look. They always advise you to just throw them randomly across the ground and then plant them where they fall. You don't necessarily have to do that, but try to get a random look to it so it does look natural. Maybe two together in one place, perhaps three in another and a single somewhere else, and then cover them up nicely. People always say make sure that you've got them the right way up, but to be honest, that doesn't really matter because they will pull themselves upright if you've got them the wrong way round. They do have roots that will position themselves. They have what are called contractile roots, so they will pull themselves deeper in the soil over time as well. 
I don't think you need worry too much about them after that. I don't feed mine at all. But do make sure that once they are planted, that you will let them, you know, especially getting them established, they will want a little bit of moisture. But you'll be planting in the autumn. Try to plant September, October, early November if you can. After that, they're already going into growth and it's getting a bit late. And once they're in, they should be fairly happy. But do remember not to be cutting down the foliage. They do need to absorb any nutrients from their foliage as they die back naturally. If they're happy, they won't die out at all. The ones that I've got on my hedge, I think have been there since the 1930s. And they've come back year after year. And you'll see that a lot in the verges in the hedgerows in Cornwall, where random bulbs have been thrown out of the fields when they were, for instance, when they were roguing a crop and they were just trying to get rid of the random daffodils that have come up. And they just carry on forevermore. So long as they're happy, then you'll have them forever. And particularly the varieties like the wild daffodil, the Narcissus pseudo-Narcissus, or the daffodil binky, the ones which are seeding, there they're going to be multiplying and um, growing forever. Thanks there to Caroline. Of course, daffodils are far from the only bulbs you can plant this autumn. So for our final feature, we wanted to shed light on some of the other blooms that can add colour to your spring and summer gardens. Michael Perry, known online as Mr Plant Geek, is a plant super nerd with a finger on the pulse of what's new and fashionable. He's here with the latest trends within the world of bulbs. So the bulbs that you can plant in the autumn for spring flowering would range all the way through from daffodils of every shape and size, even the lovely rare pinker ones as well. Tulips, of course, this is a really, really wide selection, every colour of the rainbow. But also we've got hyacinths, newer double flowered ones, crocus, some more unique alliums that start to bloom in this period as well. But of course, dwarf iris, there's a lot of breeding and development in those and lots and lots of different things to choose from, really. So you shouldn't really limit yourself to just daffodils, but also looking beyond that, you know, early summer lilies into sparaxis, ixias as well. I think there's a few things out there that need a little bit more love running through from spring into early summer. Of course, ranunculus. I want to mention ranunculus too, these lovely tissue paper flowers. So there's a lot more to it than just daffs. There's so many colors. Everything that works nicely is a cut flower as well, and certainly things that you wouldn't find in the florists. So in terms of trends for this year, I think we're still enjoying a lot of lovely pastel colours, peachy colours as well. In terms of tulips, I think there's, there's a real focus on Darwin hybrids that tend to be more reliably perennial, which will come back every year, which is obviously, you know, great when you consider the cost of tulips and the fact that many of the newer hybrids can only be grown as annuals. So I think there's a real focus on ones that have that Darwin genetics behind them. But also, we're still happy to grow tulips as annuals, kind of just indulgent, really fun varieties. There's a couple that I picked out recently, Mystery Valley, which is one that has this lovely kind of almost like layered bloom. It's, it's almost like a half lily-flowered type of tulip, really, really beautiful. Also, Royal Tower, which is like the kind of ice cream type tulips where they appear from like a collar. And it actually keeps creating this collar that creates this tower with a lovely yellow bloom on top. So I would say also Fritillaria. I've seen these creeping up in the last couple of years. The Imperialis types, the Crown Imperial, and Muscari, 
We always think the grape hyacinth is a real throwaway variety, but these are great. There's a new variety on the market called Soulmate that looks lovely with blue and yellow, almost like dipped in frosted sugar kind of look. It's really, really beautiful. There's a lot out there to indulge us, but I think it is more maybe the peachy, pinky kind of ombre tones. But really, there's so much color from spring bulbs. It's tempting to grow your own Kirkenhof in any size garden, isn't it? <laughs> So in terms of planting, like some real practical advice, first of all, it's a good idea to plant your bulbs three times their own depth. Spacing is really down to you because I personally plant my bulbs closer than any of the labels tell me because I want them to be a little bit less formal. I want them to support each other as well. So I want them to hold each other up in, in containers. I want to have that kind of almost like really kind of buxom display as well. And I'm always torn between having my bulbs very natural, kind of dotted little colors here and there, kind of, I like to plant tulips, for example, right at the edge of the pathway, because then it's very, it's really informal. It's kind of like almost as nature kind of just drop these bulbs and seeds from the sky. So I love to have them just kind of like maybe tumbling over the pathway. So I'm kind of torn between this very wild look, but also I spend a lot of time in Holland, especially in the spring, and I see how their bulb displays are planted. And very often they're kind of, a hybrid between a trial and a garden planting. And they will often plant like groups of bulbs in like neat little clumps. It's almost like 20 of one variety in a clump. And so you have these little pockets of color in the garden. And it kind of has this, I don't know, it kind of has this little Dutch vibe to me that I quite like about it too. And, and of course, think about what you plant alongside your bulbs because plants like forget-me-nots are gonna pair really nicely. Don't forget to think about which bulbs are going to look good alongside your herbaceous perennials because at the point when tulips are blooming, your peony foliage is just starting to come to life and that actually looks beautiful alongside emerging tulips as well. So think about what plants you've already got in the borders and how they could combine with your tulips and kind of give you that fuller display. One little tip I would give is always plant some alliums because they will flower in May after the tulips and May is often a point where there isn't much color in the garden because the tulips are finished and the summer bedding certainly hasn't kicked in at that point. So make sure you've got some alliums to carry you through that kind of season gap that we sometimes have around Chelsea time in the garden. I think if you need any more encouragement about choosing to grow spring bulbs is that even though it's a real sense of delayed gratification and you're kind of like, well, why would I go outside in the cold weather now to plant some bulbs? Well, cast your mind back to how you probably felt in April this year when you saw that your neighbors have some beautiful tulips or you walked around your local neighborhood and you were like, I wish I had tulips like that. Well, the time to act is now. And it does take a little bit of forward planning, which is probably the longest type of planning we ever have to do in gardening, but it is really worth it. So you will thank yourself for this next year in March through to April. Thanks to Michael. Well, I'm a bit of a bulb enthusiast, I must say, so I spend rather freely on flower bulbs. My garden being a spring garden really suits bulbs. And so this year I've splashed out on a couple of tulips, Heart's Delight and Julius Caesar, which are frilly and ornamental, so they're going to be quite spectacular. They're for containers. I planted some tulips for naturalising last year. I have grave doubts about naturalising tulips, so we'll see if they come back this year. Fingers crossed. 
Of course, tulips are planted a bit later than other bulbs. They're usually put in in November when the soil's cooled down a bit. But for all other bulbs, get them in as soon as they arrive or as soon as you buy them. Choosing and planting your bulbs is just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to autumn tasks in the garden. So here's what else you can get up to in your garden this week. Watering is important. It's not worth feeding plants now. The growing season will come to an end before the plants use the fertiliser. I like to put in some overwintered annual flowers like Larkspur to flower next spring. And I also plant some lettuce and spinach. I sow that and it'll be ready next April for a lovely fresh early bite. And of course, ground is becoming clear. What I like to do with any bare ground is never to leave it. I like to sow clover and the clover will grow over winter and fix a bit of nitrogen enriching the soil and cutting down on fertiliser. Fertiliser is not sustainable, so one really wants to reduce it as much as possible. And of course, as the ground is cleared, lots of things need to be disposed of, so I'm busy filling my compost bins. That's it for this episode. So from me, Guy Barter, thanks for listening. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilise the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets and you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine, and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.